somebody had to leave Europe on the 29th of March. And by virtue of tries from Byron McGuigan and Denny Solomona, along with 10 points from the boot of AJ McGinty, on Friday night, Sale made sure it would be Connor who exited the European Challenge Cup at the quarter final stage. The Sharks' 20 points to 10 victory means Sale now proceed to the next round of the competition and travel to La Rochelle for their semi final match later this month. My name is Lewis, welcome back inside the Shark Tank, and I'm delighted to say I'm joined by both of my co hosts, Alex and James. Alex, how are you? I'm very good, mate. Um, I, I was better at half-time than I was at full-time on Friday, I'll say that much, but in, um, very happy to get through and uh, looking forward to a semi-final in France. It will be an incredibly exciting trip and I, I know we'll definitely come on to that slightly later on in the podcast. James, how are you? Oh, Challenge Cup's coming out, mate. <laughs> coming home. <laughs> Just rightful. How 2005... Pontypridd 2001 that's alright that's alright some of us are old enough to remember that well James with the European semi-final now secured this feels like a really good place to jump off how important do you think the the, the Challenge Cup becomes now to sail especially relative to their uh, their top six challenge in the Premiership Um, I think it becomes really important actually because you're literally just two games away from winning Um, the complication being that those two games are away at La Rochelle and then against Claremont, um, who just looked or terrifying. Um, but, you know, but we've got a chance, haven't we? And I've got to throw everything at it. What an opportunity to win some silverware. So, uh, and you get that sense that, it, you know, it could be a bit like, you know, on our route to the 2006 uh, Premiership title, where we really got some momentum going the year, you know, previously in the year um, to win the in Europe. So, I think, um, fingers crossed that that's the case. Alex, from your introduction this week, it sounds like you are very, very excited about the uh, chance to play La Rochelle in La Rochelle with a, with a place in the Challenge Cup final on the line. How, how excited were you to see not only Sale beat Connor on Friday, but also to see La Rochelle put away Bristol uh, on Sunday afternoon? Um, I got less excited as I realised that La Rochelle were quite good. Um and they're probably actually going to struggle in the semi-final away from home but um, you know the any semi-final is massively exciting um, I just think the fact that it's away in France you know it's it's both a massive challenge but also a huge opportunity because n- most people are going to be completely writing us off and if we've got the team together who you know can you know we're starting to gel a bit more than probably they currently are because of all the injuries and you know, players playing out of position, then I'm confident we could beat that Rochelle. I mean, this team beat Saris. You, you know, you've got to remember that. Yes, we had the Debris brothers in that team, so you've got to factor that in. But other than that, you know, we we we've really got the opportunity to go and you know dust up some French noses. And I think if Bristol can win there, then we should be able to as well. So it's just massively exciting to go and have a semi-final opportunity because it's been so long I mean when was the last time we were in any sort of semi-final probably 2006 in the Premiership wasn't it yeah. unless we're counting LV Cup which I'm very much not <laughs> well before we start talking about that trip to, to France in the Challenge Cup semi-finals obviously we are going to spend some time looking at what transpired on Friday night with Sale obviously beating Connor. Uh, to reach uh, that stage of the competition and before we get into the the X's and O's of that game we obviously wanted to ask you the listener your opinion on Friday's game with 
uh, as always, your three word reviews. So just a couple that I wanted to highlight here. The Keg, great first half. Tom, at Thomas Lee's, worrying second half. Richard Lilly, AJ's back, hurrah. AJ, at AJSWFC, proper 10 evident. Kieran Critchard, AJ's importance demonstrated. Alex Etherington did the job of Van Cannonball. Van Cannonball unstoppable. So James, I'm sensing a theme here that a lot of people wanted to pick out AJ McGinty for, for praise. And obviously he came back into the squad uh, and starting lineup for the Connacht game uh, and played, I think we can all reasonably agree, very well. So James, how important do you think it was having AJ McGinty back in the squad playing at 10 in ultimately uh, providing a win for sale over Connacht on Friday? I think credit goes to him as an individual because there was some negativity starting to creep in to sale fans we haven't really seen him um, you know certainly this year we've not really seen him um, so you know we're starting to worry well you know with Rob Dupree coming back in do we need AJ or Kieran Wilson coming through I thought he was outstanding especially in the first half um, I thought he made all the right decisions but also you know his short passing and his long passing were excellent he was taking the ball to the line he was clearly really, really up for it. And he looked pretty fit to me as well, which I thought was a, a surprise on the upside. I think, you know, putting that to one side, I think we can all agree that AJ had a really good uh, game. But against that, I think uh, Sam James um, also back at 13, being that second distributor. And also it allows McGinty to play almost like the Danny Cipriani role, because often Danny Cipriani plays that one a bit further out. And they sort of interchange quite comfortably. And actually, one, you know, um, McGinty's fast hands led to one of the tries just that little bit, one step further out. So I think that it's, yes, McGinty came back. He was really, really up for it. His kicking was solid. His distribution was excellent. I thought his, his decision-making was good. Particularly in the first half, it was clear that he'd made a really, really big difference to the momentum that the side had going forwards. Um, but Sam James also back at 13 shows that those two together, they increase our attacking options quite significantly. Yeah, I thought on his return to the starting lineup, this was very much the, the sort of perfect AJ McGinty game in that what you got out of him against Connacht was four for four kicking, two penalties and two conversions for the, for the 10 points that ultimately proved the difference between the two sides. So having that dependability as, uh, from your place kicker is obviously something we've not had for a good number of weeks now. Uh, we saw yeah. some good distribution, uh, especially in the lead up to Sell's second try, where he floated the pass over to Solomon, an inch perfect pass. Um, we also saw some good decision making. I thought it was in play kicking. He only kicked from hand, I think it was three times, but every time it was the right decision. So it's great to see that. That's obviously a part of the game that we've we suggested that he, he, he would need to develop to become a, a top four caliber fly half. And we also saw him you know, take the ball to the line, as, as we know he's wont to do. And I thought his decision making on the whole was, was pretty good. Uh, there's still a couple of exact, a couple of instances where I thought uh, taking the ball to the line was the wrong option, um, and he didn't necessarily make uh, make any ground or he, he lost a dominant collision. But I think you, you saw from how James and and Fafter Clerk played uh, on Friday, just that having having a very much prototypical ten in that ten role meant that we actually played with uh, with a lot more structure, and you actually saw a slightly more refined game from someone like De Klerk compared to how he played against Newcastle because he wasn't necessarily having to act as the sole playmaker. He had McGinty at 10, and obviously then Sam James is a second distributor in the wide channels, where we know he is uh, very effective. And I thought that made an absolute massive difference to Sale. Uh, on a game like Friday's, where structure, it was a low-scoring game, there was a, a lot of emphasis played 
based on team play I thought having McGinty in the team made a massive difference Alex? Yeah completely agreed I think this the structure point is huge because our backline looked like they sort of knew what they were doing and where they needed to go and I think I mean yeah I remember when we did that interview by McGuigan he, he said AJ is just a lead on the field and you could see that the whole backline you know was way more coherent and cohesive and looked like they knew what they were doing compared to against Newcastle when our attack really just looks like it couldn't break Newcastle down couldn't create space um, and you look at some of those you know the, the pass over to Denny there was one point where the ball came out and he just put in a great kick down the line um, he was sort of in a five metre channel put a kick down the line into Connacht 22 it was just pushing them back and pushing them back and I think um, in that first half that was I was sort of going this is exactly what I've been saying once we have a 10 we're going to play good rugby because we, all the other pieces were there and the other point is, you know, from a kicking point of view, we won by 10 points, 10 of which were scored by AJ, 100% um, success rate from the team, I'm pretty sure. And the fact is, two, there were two conversions from either touchline, which he absolutely nailed, and then two penalties. And, you know, you're looking at that second half, we were 20 points to three up, and Connacht really had us on the ropes all of the second half. You know, we didn't offer anything that half really and there were times when they should have done much better and scored you know but I think part of the reason that it ended up being part of the reason we won is that at that period we were 20 points to 3 up now compare that to Newcastle last week where we went in 10 points to 6 up having missed a penalty um, and you know not being able to take those penalty kicks at goal because we didn't have a kicker inside I think that's a massive part of you know building a lead when you're playing well because we're going to have bad phases during the game and in Connacht that was the whole of the second half and in Newcastle it was the first 20 minutes of the second half and the difference in having someone like AJ McGinty is not only that our attacking structure is way better but that we can put ourselves far enough away that we don't lose our heads and we don't go behind and we don't give the opposition confidence that we're coming back into it um, so for those sort of two Broader points, I thought he was absolutely brilliant. But yeah, he had an absolutely brilliant game side from that. But I think what he brought to our team just showed you how important it is to have a ten. Yeah, I think we could wax lyrical about McGinty and his importance to the to that sale team, both both on and off the field. As, as you mentioned, that's an excellent point about him being the being the leader in the back line. But there's a couple of other players that I wanted to highlight uh, who I thought had made made a genuine difference to the game and scoreline. And I want to start with Denny Solomona, who. And I'd be interested to get your, uh, your opinions on this, but I thought he was a clear man of the match for me. A 12-point swing, scoring his try, and that incredible try-saving tackle, forced fumble, forced error, whatever, on Jack Carty uh, after Carty had intercepted the clerk's pass and ran clear. To see something like that to begin the game and see Solomona make a significant impact from a defensive standpoint and, and genuinely save a seven-point score and then a few minutes later go and score a try himself. That was responsible for a 12-point swing. And we talk about McGinty impacting the final scoreline, which was ultimately relatively close. The fact that Solomona had probably his get his best game of the season and directly resulted in a 12-point swing in sales favour, I think is so important uh, to acknowledge, especially when we think about who were the real difference makers in this game. And I think, uh, as well as McGinty, Denny Solomona deserves absolutely all the credit that's been thrown at him over the weekend. Because I thought that, that might be might have been his best game in a cell shirt. I thought, I think Denny's been absolutely superb for a number of weeks now. 
And what's clear is he's got that real hunger. He's smashing people in the tackle. I mean, he's putting in some enormous hits. He's always been capable of doing that, but rushing out. And for credit where credit's due, he's actually turning into a much better defender. Um, and, you know, it's not just the chase down tackle, which obviously I think showed hunger defensively to really get back and get Carter. He had the angle on him, but still, that you could really see in his face he was, he was after him. But he's been absolutely superb. And in terms of England... Um, it's been mentioned online, isn't it, that you know he should be in with in with a shout. I think you know Conkernasinga's kind of got ahead of him in that kind of role, that kind of you know person to come and and have make a difference in the group games or off the bench in the World Cup, which is a shame. But any injuries, and you've got to think about him now because I think he's listened to what Eddie Jones has asked him, and he's improving in those areas, and he's still scoring tries at a rate of knots. I don't know how you can ignore that. Yeah, I completely agree. I think what was um, interesting, last night I was watching the Premiership Rugby highlights from last week, um, and in the Newcastle game, I'd sort of forgotten about this, but there's one point where Beaumont makes him run down the, rips it off him, runs through our defence, and Solomona comes from, it starts, well, you know, start, standing star, Sonotti has gone past him, and he makes up the ground, tackles him, it's when Ben Curry gets yellow carded for going off yeah. the street, so mm-hmm. it ultimately ended up in a try anyway. But through no fault of Dennis, because to catch Tenofti last week, this week, it was you know just a superhuman effort to get back there. And yeah, as you rightly say, this that would have been the worst possible start. We were already were we already three 0 down at that point, or but it, it was right at the start of the game, obviously, and you know would have put us a massive confidence knock. Um, but then he just the, the way he beats men, you know, his hands at sometimes, you know. There's one point where I think it was Luke James or Sam James threw a pass that just died on him and he picked it up and made an absolute shot down the yards. You know, he, he can catch anything, he can finish anything. His defence is so much better, as, as you both said. Um, so I think, you know, it is really unlucky for him that he's in a period of really good England ringers. But I still think he should be in... I mean, who am I to try and explain Eddie Jones's selection policy? You know, let's not, you know, try and work out whether he's going to pick people or not. But you know, he's just got to keep doing what he's doing because he's absolutely tearing defences apart. And I think you put him one-on-one with any winger and he will score. And that's such a good asset to have in the team. So, yeah, I thought he was brilliant. I just thought Johnny Ross had an absolutely mammoth game, to be fair. Um, you know, he just his carries, his tackling. Um, he just hit everything. He led from the front. And I think, you know, it's, it, we were talking last week about the back row and I think it's really hard to leave him out because he's just such a leader on the field that when things get tough, he's the one guy, you know, you look at and you trust to stand up and fight and dig in. Um, so, yeah, I just I thought he had a great game. And Joe Jones as well for me had a really good game. Um, well, he was on the field, really solid. Yeah. And the scrum and when he came off, it actually got yeah I mean I think I'm glad you mentioned Jonah Ross and the sort of impact he had on the game because I think it's important as well to say you can say the exact same thing about Rob Webber who I thought second to Solomon who was probably our most consistent performer and again it's just you know the line out when you know 8 for 9 uh, you know 90% or whatever when he was on the pitch um, he was he was smashing tackles he was hitting rooks he was carrying he was moving his feet 
uh, you know, in, in anticipation of getting the ball. Our first try starts because he makes uh, the McGuigan try starts because he's the one who takes the ball off the back of the uh, the line out and um, makes a run. And it's just little things like that that I just thought like tallied up to yet another impressive performance from Weber. And if you're talking about players who are in form at the moment, I think Rob Weber is is up there with Solomona as our as our most informed player. But I'm also glad you mentioned Joe Jones as well because when we're looking at players to highlight, I thought he's a perfect example of of what Sale need to complement the likes of Solomona and James and, and everyone else who's who's making these match winning tackles or, or, or scores. And what you saw from Jones actually on Friday night wasn't anything spectacular. In fact it was it was a pretty unremarkable performance in a lot of ways. But I thought he was absolutely superb in just giving Sale the platform they needed to get the ball out, squeeze the Connaught scrum when necessary, move the uh, move the play around the field game territory just all these little things and it, it comes from making you one up tackles uh, carrying the ball into contact you know being able to get an edge on your opposite man at the scrum it's not necessarily anything that's, that's going to be uh, immediately contribute to the scoreboard but I thought he was the perfect example of the sort of team effort that we saw from Sale on Friday which I think we can say had, had the best of Connor all game and I think the fact that when Jones went off, I know he went off around the same time that James Phillips had been yellow carded, and that obviously contributed to to the uh, the scrum starting to wobble a little bit in the the sort of last quarter of the game. But I thought he was absolutely superb, and for someone who has played, you know, a, a handful of minutes for the Sharks this season, someone who's been firmly behind Will Griff John in the pecking order all season, to step in with with John presumably injured and produce a performance like that, which just gives Sale absolutely everything that they they have in Wilgriff John was was just what, what Sale needed on, on, on Friday night and I think he's a massive reason him and Harrison and, and Weber and a lot of these other players that Sale are now at a position where we can rotate the squad a little bit as, as we did um, on Friday night and still produce a result to you know to be a very good team in, in European knockout competition Massive news that James put in that performance and you could tell it was going to happen right from the very first scrum uh, absolutely rock solid he was and uh yeah, we're looking ahead to next year. We've got Cooper Woolley coming in, um, and then so we've got three, I'd say now Premiership tight heads. You know, this is a massive turnaround. And okay, you know, Taros, you know, looks like he's on his way out. It's not been announced yet, um, but I think we're well set for next season. So well done to Joe Jones. That's a big shift, and it shows he's had his chance alongside first choice players, and he's shown he can do a job rather than playing in a weakened scrum for the Jets or whatever it might be. So that's huge news. Yeah, it's just that strength and depth, isn't it? Um, absolutely absolutely massive. And to be fair, actually, one player we haven't mentioned is Rohan, who um, basically broke down Connick's entire back line for most of the first half and occasionally in the second. Um, it probably says what a good performance from the other three because... In terms of headlines, the meters he was making and the guys he was beating, I think he drops his first the first time he went into carry, dropped the ball. But after that, it was just you know twenty thirty meters every carry. It was absolutely mad. Um, so it's good to see him getting back to a bit of form. Obviously, probably against a slightly weaker defence than we'd expect to see. Definitely against La Rochelle, but also you know in the Premiership week in week out. But I think you know as he improves, having that ball carrying twelve back is going to be a massive. Um, massive part of our game and you know we worked well with AJ Faf Sam James the balance across that back line um, on Friday was, was brilliant I don't think you know other than having a proper fallback at fullback um, you know I wouldn't sort of change any of those players from, 
Friday night. And it's funny you mention that as well because the last player that I wanted to mention um, was Luke James, who a little bit like Joe Jones didn't necessarily have the you know the highlight real contribution to the game, but again was just so dependable and so solid decision making. Carrying, tackling, everything was 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 basically flawless. And there's a couple of examples that I did want to highlight where, when you remember that he's not a natural 15, he's actually you can make a case he's not a natural backline player. But I thought what we saw from him on Friday, there's a couple of instances where Connor kicked the ball deep. Maybe he gets caught out of position a little bit, but his ability to recover was in, was actually very impressive to make up the ground, regather the ball, and then actually his kicking uh, positionally and under pressure was actually very impressive and we know he's got quite a big boot on him but we saw when he started playing 15 earlier in the season that you know he's kicking the ball well into touch but it wasn't necessarily going that far um, in terms of uh, territory but what I saw on Friday being in the stands as well was was James not only being able to put his laces through the ball but he's actually on retreat still getting the ball back over the halfway line and to have that as an asset to have that as, as a player who's filling in at the position without even being a natural 15 shows you just how versatile he is as a as a player how versatile skill set he has and how important he's actually been to sale this year as a utility man I mean how uh, we talked about it some of our listeners were getting bored basically it's like the James Brothers Appreciation Society but we have been really <laughs> lucky to have them this year be able to play in multiple positions and the speed of his, this 19-year-old's learning is extraordinary. Last season, he came in and had to play at 12, uh, at 18 years of age, and made no mistakes and was Mr. Consistent. Um, he then fell down the pecking order a little bit at the beginning of this season uh, with Rohan when he came back from injury. Luke wasn't seen quite as much. Now he's been pressed into action at 15 when he's, he's basically probably had almost zero kicking game. Because he's been practicing being in the right place defensively at 12 or 13. He's making sure that he makes simple decisions. He's not, you know, passing like long distance passing. It's quite short stuff. He's he's being sensible, doing the simple things well. And his kicking game this this weekend, I was just like, bloody hell. I mean, if after four or five games at fullback, he can kick like that. Yeah, I actually think he might have legs as a 15. He might do. You just never know. Um, so good on him. And uh, I think it's going to be difficult to beat for Young Player of the Year, that's for certain. Yeah, that is so true. I think, did we, Lewis, did we miss him out of the awards and get an absolute shed load of grief? I think we did, didn't we? I think we did, but I think we were also still counting like the Curry Brothers as part of like the Young Player of the Year nomination. And Kieran Wilkinson was in it as well. So I think it's fair to say we're we're blessed with his options for that award. But I agree, James. As every week goes by, Luke James is, is making himself... Uh, a, a, a candidate that is that is hard to surpass. Yeah, completely. And he's totally right. His kicking game is absolutely he's just the length he gets from it. And as we're saying, you know, where 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 he's getting us to in the field, it's massive. Because I mean, I think this sounds ridiculous now to be talking about whether Luke James is playing seven two years ago um, is competing with Ashton at fullback. But in terms of Ashton's kicking game, you know, I, Luke James is better. And, you know, defensively, considering how young he is and how little he's been playing there, he's probably also better defensively. Um, I'm not saying that James should be starting over Chris Ashton, because attacking-wise, obviously, it's totally different prospects. But, you know, having someone who can... I, 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 yeah, I'm not going to continue you know, 
um, saying how good the Jades brothers are, but they're very, very good. And it's it's another one of those strength and depth things where I do think we need a 15, but I do think Luke Jones is also an option at 15 in the way that Sam James shouldn't be an option at 10, if that makes sense. Because I think Sam James at 10, we lacked all structure and kicking game. Whereas Luke James at 15, we actually don't lose very much. That's an interesting point on, on James versus Ashton at 15. And I think the benefit of Luke James is that I think he's a better he's a better one-up tackler than, than Chris Ashton. He's probably got a better defensive game. Ashton is obviously the, the far superior uh, attacking player. But I think with Ashton at 15, you have to design your structure to hide Ashton a little bit. You don't necessarily have him competing for every high ball and you need to think about how you're going to position him in the defensive line because his recovery speed is fantastic but he isn't necessarily the man to jump into the line and make a big tackle which we've seen someone like Sam James do quite well. I think the benefit of having Luke James is that what you lose in an attacking sense is that you don't necessarily have to build your defensive structure in a way that that hides James as, as a tackler at 15. You can basically slot him in uh, at fullback with whoever you want in the midfield or on the wings and you still can depend on to do a job whereas I think depending on how you orchestrate your midfield there will have to be a, there'll be a certain combination of players that Chris Ashton's natural skill set especially defensively fits better with uh, where, whereas I don't think that's necessarily a problem with Luke James Right is Yeah that, is I there... totally agree so are we, have we got any more players we want to highlight or have we basically gone through the whole team at this point? <laughs> I think it was a good solid team performance, wasn't it? I mean, are there, are there any stats to support any of what we've said? <laughs> any of what we've said. Um, so, quick stats this week. Um, second half, we were rubbish, by the way. I, this is this is madness. 52% possession in the first half, relatively good. 36% possession in the second half and 37% territory. Um Apparently, this is according to ESPN, because I've got the officer with me, but we were 33% on line-outs, um, and we have a tackle success rate of 87%. Yeah, it's, it's a bit mad. Um, but in, term, in terms of sort of individuals, Rohan made 75 metres, Denny made 72 metres, Luke made 46 metres, uh, Johnny Ross, 21 out of 22 tackles, um, some big sort of attacking performances, uh, less so defensively. I just think the whole team sort of struggled a little bit um, in defence, especially in the second half. Yeah, I think that. Uh, shall we touch on the second half just a little bit? Because I'd be interested to get your thoughts, James, on, on where you sort of think everything didn't necessarily go wrong for Sale in the second half, but kind of fell flat, especially after having such a dominant performance in the first half. Well, I just think Connor clearly had a strategy to keep the ball. Um, and that was that was working but we've shown that we have a defence that can get off the floor and, and we're, we're fit and we can keep tackling so I don't think they I know they, they you know they looked a bit more threatening but compared to the amount of possession that they had I thought we still looked reasonably comfortable in defence overall our team structures were pretty much in, in good shape um, Curry was, was covering the ground Ross was still putting in a shift in the tackling so I still felt relatively comfortable about it, um, but it just meant that we struggled to get the ball back. Um, and then, you know, if our set piece, say, at the line-out wasn't going quite as well as we needed it to in the second half, then we're not able to keep possession ourselves. We keep turning it over in that sense. People don't often look at that as a turnover, do they? They see turnovers as seven or whatever over the ball, stealing the ball back. 
but actually not hitting your man in the line out is, is just exactly the same because then you're giving scrum ball um, you know in a good field position then that's that's not so good so I just think that Connor played a bit better they kept the ball better um, but I didn't think we looked like we were too panicky um, but we, our set piece wasn't right and we just weren't getting some of the basics yeah I I think it's sort of been hidden a bit um, so our performance looks quite good but Connor's were rubbish like <laughs> at times they were just really like basic errors so they weren't you know they weren't a bad team but just dropping the ball, like you know, kicking a penalty out into into yeah. touch, like that is just. I think you know we got we we did play, we played really well first half. I think we got away with it massively second half. We got on the wrong side of the ref. Connacht once they started holding the ball, always looks like they're going to get through our defence uh, eventually. I just you know I think as much as it's great to be in the semi final, we are going to need to up our game a massive amount on any chance at La Rochelle so I know we've been positive but we, we then, that second half was really really poor we didn't score a point did we you know we, and we didn't look like scoring a point either I, I can't remember us having an attack and mm-hmm. as part of that comes from the fact we couldn't win a set piece we're getting battered at the scrum and line out just couldn't get the ball back off them um, but part of that is also just a sort of you know a lack of I don't, I don't know what it was and obviously we won so it's quite encouraging that playing, you know, quite badly in the second half, we're still able to win. Um, but you know, if Connacht turned up on the day, um, we we would have lost that game because we didn't play well enough in the second half. No, it's not a massive issue. The players clearly know, you know, that it is an issue in our coming out after half time. But you know, I'd, I'd like to caveat all the positive things I've said with the fact that. We were playing against a team who had a really poor game by both their standards and just general European standards. Yeah. So hopefully that kicks us all into action for <laughs> next week and beyond. Yeah, so three three really quick things. Um, number one, Carl Godwin um, kicking a penalty, not, not only... Um, out of touch, but dead. He, he genuinely just kicked it dead from the centre of the field when he was going for the five metre line. I don't think I've ever seen it. I've never seen someone slice a kick to touch that that poorly. Um, and he certainly didn't necessarily have his, have his best game. Although uh, his try, um, especially, was was more a symptom of, of sales sort of falling off tackles. Uh, when you go back and, and watch it, it's a really really poor score to concede because uh, Sam James, AJ. Um, and even John Ross to an extent just kind of fall off the tackles and, and let him sort of squirm over. Um, so, yeah, so Godwin had a bit of a bit of a mixed game. Um, the second thing I wanted to mention is that obviously we have to caveat the second half performance with the, with the knowledge that Sale were down to fourteen men for ten minutes. And and, and just just quickly, do we think it was a, a deserved yellow card for James Phillips for an arm tackle? Yeah, but that was the law. Looking at it, I was sort of thinking, yes. Um, I, I think you know, and there's probably if I'm applying, I think it was unfortunate. Like, I think it was sort of the player, it was sort of a bit off balance and the, the change of direction and that kind of thing. But yeah, for me, definitely yellow card. Um, probably lucky in the current environment and especially watching to lose racing on Sunday. That it wasn't worse because um, I, I mean I've only watched it in the stadium. I've watched it back, so but I thought definite yellow, risk of a red. Given it was near the head area, I think wasn't it? So yeah, um, yeah that for me, the right decision. And generally, I think the ref had 
um, a pretty poor game, but that was one of the right decisions. Um, but some of the sort of TMO calls and the farce at the end, um, I, I, we won't go into it too much because I hate criticising refs. Um, but yeah, it was just a bit, a bit poor. James, yellow, the right decision for Phillips? Yeah, yellow for me. Yeah. It's probably on the whole scheme of things. I think it could have gone any which way once yeah. it was noticed. Um, but so I, I think the yellow was probably the right decision. Yeah. I mean, James Phillips is a big man. Um, so dangerous play by him really could <laughs> sort of end his <laughs> career. But um, it was unfortunate the way it happened. And it, it's difficult for him to change his own body shape once he's committed. Yeah, uh, and my third point on the, on that second half um, of Sale versus Connor is that obviously it was a bit of a flat performance, but we built we built the lead for ourselves, and we'd actually built ourselves a bit breathing room, and that actually takes us full circle back to our discussion about AJ McGinty at the start because I think we can almost forgive Sale's performance in the second half because they went into it seventeen points up because of how well they played in the first half and how well they built a lead, and there is no way of quantifying it but the fact that Connor was 17 points down they nearly had to change something about the game they nearly had to get into it because it's a knockout game the fact that Sale knew that they could comfortably sit on a lead and invite a little bit of pressure because of how large the lead was I think that obviously has a massive impact on the second half and it's disappointing that we didn't um, kick on and you know put a few more points past them and, and seal the game on the 55-60 minute mark but at the same time you know unfortunately that's just the way things go sometimes and, and having such a sizable lead is, is something that does um, factor into how teams play especially when they come out for the second half yeah completely and I think you know as, as you say if we, if we go for the rest of the season and go in you know a load of points up at half time have a bit more second half but hold on I'll absolutely take that I don't care when we play well as long as we play well enough to win the game um, you know we, we saw some good rugby I was by no means you know disappointed at full time um, I was quite relieved that the game was over after about 10 minutes of sitting watching people try and get the scrum together um, so you know as you say it is forgivable but as professional rugby players I'm sure that that is a massive issue which has been identified and hopefully um, we should be working on for I guess our away semi-final in La Rochelle yeah so really quickly on our semi-final away in La Rochelle um, I know we had a poll a little bit earlier in the year asking what people's preference was uh, in terms of whether or not it was going to be La Rochelle away or Bristol at home and I think it was 80-20 in favour of Bristol at home but the cards have been dealt and it's La Rochelle away and, and obviously we talked about it a little bit at the start of the podcast but I just want to get across how excited I am for this game as a spectacle because I think not only is it a fantastic opportunity um, for Sale to make a little bit of noise. I think it's a marquee matchup that could potentially put us back on the radar of being one of the best you know, 20 clubs in Europe. And I also think it could, as I said last week, it could end up being like a foundational moment in when we look back at the Simon Orange and Jed Mason era of owning Sale because I think it does bring an element of relevancy and it does bring an element of authenticity to sales, you know, so far bluster about being a, a team that, that wants to challenge for top honours both domestically uh, and in Europe. And I think not to say it had we beaten Bristol in a semi-final and got to the European Challenge Cup final that it 
takes anything away from Sales achievement because that's still a fantastic achievement. But I think this game in La Rochelle really gives us an opportunity to, to make a statement, uh, not only on the new era of Sales Sharks rugby, but on European rugby as well, because that might be, it, should we go to La Rochelle and, and pick up a, a victory? That could be Sales' most momentous victory in, well, since we won the Premiership in 2006. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, look, I would have preferred to have had a home semi-final that I could have gone to and watched us beat Bristol and then gone up to Newcastle and played Claremont on a pitch we've already played on this year. Um, so that I think that really would have put us in with a, clearly a much better shout of winning the competition. Going to La Rochelle, I mean, we're going to have to play pretty much our best game of the season to beat them there. Is that, like with most um, grounds in in France, it's a cauldron of a place, really cracking atmosphere. La Rochelle play a really great brand of rugby. Um, they've had a bit of change within the coaching staff, etc., over the past sort of year, season and a half. Um, but they're, they're sitting seventh in the top 14. Um, I imagine they will probably qualify automatically for the um, Champions Cup. But they're in a similar situation to us, basically. Um, they could end up in the playoffs to, to you know, in the uh, maybe even top three. Um, but they might not qualify at all. So they're going to want to win this competition now they've got this far with a home semi-final that's going to be rowdy. Great opportunity, you say, to put our name on the map, but it is, I'd say you know, we are definitely the underdogs, there's no question. Yeah, completely. I mean, as, as you say this, I think for the players as well, the chance to win something, we've got players who will want to be winning things. You know, you've got the likes of Vaftaclerk, Rohan, but you've got Ashton... Um, O'Connor, these are all guys who are used to winning things or you know being in teams that are competing to win things. And I think it's, as you say, it's massive for those sorts of players to be, you know, a, a club like Sale. As fans, we're almost not used to winning things. We sort of expect our oh, top six is a success. Um, so to go home, actually, you know, being being the final four of competition and standing a chance of, uh, of winning the thing is is brilliant and I think the other the other probably aspect of it is Champions Cup qualification because um, I don't know how it works this year but obviously the winner gets placed but I think is there not something that if the winner um, the winner doesn't if the winner already has a place through their domestic league then the runner up gets a place have I made I think we looked at this last year no, I think we? it goes to the league it's the league of the winner, uh, okay. and they get an extra slot. And then sometimes there's a playoff, depending on what's happened. But um, so if let's say La Rochelle or Claremont win this competition, then the se- the seventh place side in the top fourteen, I think, qualify. But I think that's one for our listeners because uh, I'm not entirely sure. So listeners, if you know <laughs> the answer to Alex's question, please can you send it to um, our Twitter account? Thank you. <laughs> we just get a PO box, don't we? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But honestly, uh, watching us lift the trophy would be baffling because the last time we did it, I was what eleven, so <laughs> it would be oh. quite nice to watch it. Yeah, no, that's that's made James feel really old. And on that <laughs> note, <laughs> um, yeah. So, and you know, that's the sort of thing that as well attracts big players to come to the club. Um, you know, teams that win trophies. Um, so hopefully, if we can attract those big players and and sign contracts with them, then um, you know maybe maybe winning a trophy would mean that they'd like to stay and 
I was wondering how you were going to segue into into the next thing we wanted to discuss, and that was absolutely fantastic. Because as you talk about players who sign contracts and armor contracts uh, and want to join up with the club, it brings us very neatly onto the topic of uh, of a certain Stephen Kitchoff. Now, as we sort of hinted at on Twitter uh, over the weekend, the news that broke was that Stephen Kitchoff has uh, has allegedly uh, turned down uh, a deal with South Sharks uh, to stay with um, the Stormers in South Africa uh, and, <clears throat> by extension, the South African Rugby Union. Um, and what we wanted to talk about was just give, give the listeners a little bit of a bonus this week because obviously everyone's sort of read the story in the, the rugby paper and everyone's seen the rumours in uh, uh, in the South African press and in the English press as well but obviously we wanted to give just a little bit of context um, as well to, to what actually happened um, we've done a little bit of digging we've uh, spoken to a few sources um, and we wanted to sort of share that with people just so everyone sort of understands exactly why Sale was so close to a deal with Stephen Kitschoff and why ultimately it's fallen through uh, as with most things <laughs> it came down to money um, the long and short of it is that Kitchoff and, and Sale have been talking for uh, a number of weeks and months and Sale believed that they had a deal agreed with Stephen Kitchoff and for all intents and purposes he had uh, signalled his intention to join. However, as part of his current contract with uh, the Stormers and South, and South African Rugby, there was apparently a clause in his contract which would allow uh, the South African Union to match or better um, any contract that Kitchoff has signed with uh, a, a foreign club uh, or foreign uh, union. And what that means uh, is that ultimately that Sale and Kitchoff did agree a deal. It looked like Kitchoff was, uh, was set to join Sale and then ultimately the South African Union took up the option to match and actually exceed the amount paid uh, to Kitchoff as part of his uh, deal with Sale. Uh, and ultimately Kitchoff has decided out of the two options that his preference is to stay. The only thing we're not entirely sure about is whether or not it's an automatic option in his contract that would suggest that if the SARU uh, did match his contract then he is legally bound to sign the extension. That's one thing we're not sure about but the long and short of it is is that Sale and Kitchoff had a deal (coughs) by (coughs) pardon me by contract, um, the South African Union uh, had the option um, to at least match the deal with Kitchoff and offer him the alternative to stay in South Africa. Uh, and as far as we are aware, not only have they done that, they've also actually exceeded sales contract offer, such as their desire to keep him in South Africa. And Kitchoff has ultimately decided um, that his preference would be to stay um, with the Stormers. Obviously, it's a disappointing news um, for sale fans. Obviously especially when you think about how close Kitchoff was to joining the club, but completely understandable if Kitchoff and his family are happy in South Africa. And actually, if the South African Union has the funds to match the contract, then it is understandable that Kitchoff ultimately decided to stay, given that, unfortunately, one of the one of the reasons why a lot of South African players have been leaving the country in recent years is because the financial opportunities are so much greater in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and, and that... Well, that that that's all she wrote. Yeah, I think that, you know the, the positives. Uh, pos- first positive is that this is clearly a really good result for world rugby. The trend of South Africans coming to the Northern Hemisphere and Japan, we've obviously gladly welcomed them with open arms at Sale and at other clubs. But it's a massive, massive problem for rugby and any Premiership fan, including Sale fans, who um, will skip past that 
um, you know, aren't real rugby fans in my view. It's a serious, serious issue. Um, so that I think is a good result for rugby. Second positive is that we could not have imagined that Morozov would be where he is in his development in the games that we've seen him. I think the reason why he's not on the bench more often is because of our EQP um, qualification and therefore having Bristow coming off the bench is uh, is better for us on, on that account. But we've seen enough from Morozov to see that he really is an option and can have uh, an impact on games at Premiership level. We don't know whether we can do it consistently, but I think... Uh, presumably the club might have seen enough to know that that's, that's the case and Bristow's done an alright job off the bench maybe he's an option to stay on we've not seen him presume, presume he's off but the point is is that we have a bit more depth there than we thought we did and also certainly more depth there than we did this time last year when we were going into the market for a loose head prop so it might be that the um, owners decide the diamond decides that the money might be better off spent elsewhere the negatives are that this would have been our biggest signing since McAllister, um, I think in 2006-07. Um, real statement signing. I mean, Richie Gray was a big signing, but I think that Kishoff is, is going to be the best world, uh, best loose head in the world post-World Cup. He's already taken over from the beast, really, starting for South Africa. But even if he doesn't, like post-World Cup, he'll be the premier loose head. So this would have been a real opportunity to say we've got the clerk who's the premier scrum half, Kishoff who's the premier loose head. We really would have stamped ourselves on the map. And the fact we got this close to signing him, it is a bit of a disappointment. A lot of people are going to be worried going into next season if we don't sign another loose head prop, just because there still is some of the unknown behind Harrison. Um, and uh, you know we know how reliant and how lucky we've been um, about with his fitness. So there are some pros and some cons. These things happen. Bigger picture, good for world rugby. Short term, is it going to affect any other South Africans wanting to come north and specifically to sail? Yeah, Alex. Um, generally, pretty much agree with all your points. I don't think I've got a massive amount to add, but just yeah, you know, I think. It isn't the disaster that it could have been at one point. Um, it is us losing out on a very good player. It's a massive shame. It would have been brilliant. But yeah, I completely agree that we've got more depth there than we really thought we had. And we've got other areas of our squad that that money can be well spent on. Not necessarily better spent, but certainly well spent. Um, you know, 10, 15, second row are all areas which need a little bit of investment I think not a, not a big world class signing but a little bit of investment and you know if you know, Kitshop wage Kitshop's wage will have been massive um, so hopefully we can pick up some some good players it's just whether we've got the time to do that now um, with this coming out now hopefully it's come out early enough that that is the case but you know I think um, nothing lost nothing gained but a massive shame uh, but not not an overall negative my last point on Kitchoff is actually that I still think to an extent that this has been a statement not only of sales financial clout but obviously of the calibre of player we are capable of attracting because I want to emphasise this as, as we explain what has happened with Kitchoff. it appears that it is very much a case of exceptional circumstances that have kept Kitchoff in South Africa and for all intents and purposes he was ready to join the club ready for the 2019-20 season following his appearance at the World Cup with South Africa. It is only a, as I said, exceptional circumstance that has allowed the South African Union 
to retain him, that that has stopped it. And I think that sale was so close to signing, as you said, James, someone who is arguably one of the premier loose heads in the world, if not a, t- a top three uh, player in his position, speaks volumes about just how far sale have come in the three years that they've been owned by Simon Orange and Jed Mason, not only from a financial perspective, but from the law of playing for the club and, and the calibre of players we've been able to attract and sign has built directly into what has become a very a very attractive proposition for players like Kitschoff, who are potentially looking to move to the Northern Hemisphere and join up with a club that can be a genuine contender in both Europe uh, and in the Premiership. And on that point, it's very important that if Sale are to become that club that challenges and for European and domestic honours, they need to beat the teams that are in and around them in the table. Up next for Sale in the Premiership, it's Harlequins. Right, yeah. So, I mean, Quins, I went to watch Sale Quins down at the Stoop first game of the season where there was all this hope and we ended up losing really quite badly. And anybody who listens to that podcast will remember me going, I don't really understand how that happened. Like, Quins, they were so average. And so much of the feedback that you get on Quins this year is that they've played poorly or they've scraped over the line and didn't deserve to win, etc. But the fact is, they're looking pretty comfortable in a playoff position in the top four of the Premiership. And if you look at their form specifically since the start of the year, they have lost just two games um, in that period in a what I call competitive, so not including the Premiership Cup. They've lost away at Gloucester and away at Saracens. Well, there's no shame in either of those two things. They have been two of the more recent Premiership games, which has slightly held them back. And to that extent, the Worcester win at the weekend in the Challenge Cup was massive, I think, because they played... I watched the game. They played very poorly. I don't think they deserved it. But the key thing for them is that they're back in the winning habit. Um, And, you know... The thing is that people say they've been playing poorly all season. Well, they're not playing that poorly because they're in the top four and also a European semi-final. So Gustard has clearly made an enormous impact with the resources that he has there, especially when you look at how they played last year, where they were playing some reasonable rugby at times, but really getting hammered um, for most of the other times. And the amount of games that they've won so far in 2019, they've won away at Falcons, home to Grenoble, away at Agen, home to Worcester, home to Bristol, away at Bath and away at Worcester. So, I mean, they are in much better form on paper than we are in 2019. In terms of their players and their starting lineup, I think they've got a, a, a really good front row. They've got Marler, they've obviously got Sinclair as well, back from England, GT. And Aaliyah at Hooker, who I think is really coming on as a Premiership hooker. He's very mobile, his throwing in's pretty good at the line out. Obviously, everyone's waxing lyrical about Alex Dombrandt at the moment and his carrying ability. We're really going to have to make sure that we're stopping him on the game line because as a one- or two-hour carrier, he is very, very destructive indeed. And if they do get over the game line, Quins, what they have in the backs that we really struggle with because our defence we we are it's built on aggressive defence. So we try and win a lot of dominant collisions um, on the game line. And... That works when the team can't get over that game line. But if Dombran can get them over, Kerr and Smith, the halfback, with their pace around the fringes, is going to absolutely terrify our, our basically our back row if they're backpedalling around the fringes. And then even then, you know, even if we manage to you know do a scramble defence, that's when the likes of 
uh, Joe Marchant uh, and Nathan Earl and their pace out wide is really going to uh, pay dividends. So I think with Quinns, sometimes we really struggle, and it's the same when we play Northampton with Ryan Acker at, at nine. I really do think what's essential here is that we win the collisions on the game line, and that means that we'll be making Kerr and Smith do silly things to try and really push the game. If we start moving on the back foot, then they've really got the pace to really, really hurt us. So, yeah, I, I, I'm a bit worried about this game, to be perfectly honest. It's a must-win at home. Um, I think we've got five games left, three at home. We win those three games, we, we, we end up in the top six. If we can win four or five out of those five, then you never know, especially if we've made sure to beat Quinns and start reeling them in. I think one aspect of this game as well that does need to be emphasised is the fact that we've been talking all season about how Sale are a top six challenger and maybe a top four challenger. And obviously coming into the the match this week, Sale are sixth in the table on 40 points and Quinns are fourth on 49 points. And in a lot of ways, this game might represent the end of Sale's top four challenge because actually a victory over Harlequins ends up being an eight-point swing and all of a sudden you're within potentially one game of uh, fourth place and so I think yeah. if Quinns are able to pull out a victory at the age of Bell on Friday that is a significant swing away from Sale which consolidates their place and Gloucester's place in, in, in the playoffs and it just drops Sale a, 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 just, just a little bit lower down in that middle pack in the table and it means that the only real uh, opportunity for a team to catch either Gloucester or Quinns in the top four might be end up being Northampton or Bath Northampton on 41 points and Bath on 39 points depending on uh, how results shake out at the weekend so I kind of feel like this this is a, 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 not necessarily a make or break moment in sales season because I think there's still an opportunity to finish in the top six even if uh, they aren't able to beat Quinns on Friday but it does kind of feel like this is it for the top four push unless Gloucester and Quinns absolutely melt uh, melt down in the last four games of the season if Quinns are able to get another four points at the expense of Sale on Friday it kind of feels like Sale's season is going to be capped at fifth place Yeah and actually if you look at Quinns running it's not, not easy they're, they're coming to us they also they don't forget have to go to Claremont in the semi-final um, which you know is if they get hammered there then that's not going to do much for the confidence um, they are at home against Saints but if they lose to us then Saints are going to really smell blood as well because they're they're in and around us and they'll they'll hope that that'll bring Quinns back into it all um, and they'll also go away to Exeter where you're not going to get anything there away at Wasps and um, that's going to be difficult as well um, at home to Leicester um, second game to the last game of the season who might be fighting to stay up you never know so our Quinns have got a more difficult running than us um, it starts to look a little bit easier apart from the Claremont and Exeter games if they beat us because then they've got a real good gap and they, you know, their confidence will be high. But if we can especially have a really good first half again, you know, that, that, that they did scrape through against Worcester, but they didn't play well and they've really struggled away at Gloucester and Saracens recently. So some doubt might creep in. Um, so, yeah, it looks tough, really. They are readable if we win. I think when you look at um, the last few games for Queens as well, we talk about them being in better form, but actually they've had a relatively easy run of games in, in terms of their form. Um, you know, the, the sort of Worcester um, at home, Bristol at home, we're going, I mean, different because we're going away, but we're playing Worcester and Bristol in our running. So they've sort of had their, you know, 
their chunk of the relatively easy games and now come up to a bit of a sticky point, whereas we are going into the sort of end of the season where we're actually in, in pretty good shape and we've, we've got a much easier running than probably anyone else, really, in terms of, you know, we would have said Newcastle was an easy running. Um, sorry, an easier running, and that's obviously not turned out well. So, you know, it's the, the fact that we're away is a big issue. But I think, you know, Quinns haven't played that well but are still up there. It's sort of, it's almost like what Newcastle did last season, just winning games by fine margins and almost, you know, just refusing to let go. It's very unquins. You sort of expect them to play this fanboy rugby style and not really grind out results and win games that they need to. Um, so it's really it's great news for them and really happy for Paul Gustard um, as DOR there. But I think we've got a chance on Friday to probably show them up. They don't like coming to the AJ Bell. Um, and hopefully, if we play, if we play that we did in the first half last uh, on Friday, then I think we've got enough to beat them. But as you say, they're in form, and that's sort of invaluable. They looked good against Saris on the weekend, so we're really going to have to going to have to carry those performances into the second half. I mean, fair play to Gustav, as you say, he's really getting a lot out of players. A lot of them are moving on. I mean, there's going to be there's a lot out and a lot in at Quinns in over the season, and you just get a sense. If we can beat them, and then they're at home to Saints, and then they, they've got those few tough games, they might even, you never know, they might completely melt down for you, those players aren't playing for new contracts anymore, they might suddenly end up out of the top six, um, but you just get a sense, Gustard, with the way he's a coach, you know, I think he, he, he's got really well drilled defensively, which isn't Quinn's natural strength, um, and fair play, and I think, um, yes, they don't like coming to the AJ Bell, but I think this is going to be a really hard-fought game. So we've spoken a lot about Harlequins as we preview Friday's game, but let's talk a little bit about Sale. Uh, James, in order to counteract Harlequins' strengths, do you envision Sale making any changes to the starting lineup or, or 23 that played against Connor last week? Well, I, I, it doesn't sound like O'Connor's going to be back. Um, if he is, I'd start him on the bench and bring him back in to start. Um, Ashton will be back, apparently. I think it's going to be difficult not to um, start him and then Luke James um, moving to the bench. Um, other than that, the only other shout might be Strauss at eight and moving Beaumont to four. Um, I think that Strauss could really do a job on Don, Don Brandt, really, using his experience. He's, 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 um, he's one of those tacklers. He sort of just keeps them up long enough until the secondary tackler comes in and just really slows people down and slows momentum and as I said that's how you kill Quinns you, you stop Kerr and Smith getting on the front foot and building momentum um, so that's how I see it working clearly our set piece has got to work better than it did in the second half um, against Connacht and hopefully Griff John is back I know Joe Jones did really well but now you're confident bringing Joe Jones on aren't you after 55-60 minutes yeah, totally. I think we'll get John if he's if his bit comes back in for me. Um, yeah, as you say, Landon had a really really bad game at line out time, so hopefully that's worked on in the week and it was just a blip. Um, but in terms of other changes, not a massive amount, I don't think. Uh, yeah, totally agree. Ashton should come back in, but as I say, I really like the balance across that back line, so I wouldn't I wouldn't be changing a massive amount there. Um, and in the forwards, I think the forward pack looked good enough against Connacht, other than obviously, as you say, bringing in uh, Will Griff John, that we should be confident in them going to get, uh, home to Quinn's playing that sort of game. What we what we need to do is 
sort of retain that consistency and just add a bit where we can. And I think by bringing in Wilbur John, you're adding a bit. And by bringing Ashton, you're probably overall, you know, adding to our attacking fluency and hopefully we're going to score some tries against them. Um, but it's it's just a game that I would really like to see us put in a quality performance and win because I think it's always quite niggly against Quinns. It's always quite a very good at winding you up. And, you know, you've got the Danny Cares and the Mike Browns, those sort of players. Carl so, Sinclair's. Yeah, exactly. So I would love to see us um, put in a good performance and beat them. Um, and I, I, I think the team looks good enough in the first half that we, we would do that. It's the second half that's the issue. So it's probably what the guys on the bench and using our bench in a in a good way that you know will contribute to that. But yeah, I wouldn't make wholesale changes at all because I think we we looked we looked like a team who was set up right. We just didn't play very well last week. So you know you don't need to change the team for that. I think I think you just need to make sure that the players are playing together um, through the week. Yeah, and I think if we can bring in Wilbur John at three, Josh Strauss at eight, and Chris Ashton at fifteen, I think there's enough consistency, but also enough change that we'll be able to tailor our game a little bit to to a game plan that will be able to beat Quinns. Because I do think having Chris Ashton at fifteen as a cover defender against some of the the pacey backs that Quinns have is something that we are probably going to have to utilise. And I think if he is fit, he does go straight back into the team. And, and like you said, James. Uh, Josh Strauss is a fantastic matchup against Alex Dombrand and I think that is definitely something that I'd prefer to see and allow Josh Beaumont to move back to four and that gives us the option to bring Bryn Evans in off the bench I think it just it does allow us a little bit more tactical flexibility as well and ultimately I think on paper this is a game where we could see a lot of tries but like you said Alex I'd be very very pleased if we just ground out a, a 16-7 win or something of that kind and just make sure we pick up a four points and keep keep the top six and top four push going. Right. So is that is that your uh, is that your tip then for result? <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Nice and efficient. Sixteen seven to sail. Sixteen seven. Okay. Sixteen seven. And Alex, what what are you thinking? I'm hoping it's a bit more interesting than that. To be perfectly honest, um, I'll go for. Um, 25-18 to sail I think we, we, we've we got Quinns at the AJ Bell just a note on last week um, I think James sailed 28 Connacht 19 takes the win um, so would you like to predict to continue your one week run of form we've got to back the lads at home five games to go we don't want the wheels to come off like I did last year so I'm going to say sail 29 Harlequins 21. Oh, a very positive week then on the predictions front. And on that positive then, I guess that's everything, unless you two have got anything else. No, just to continue the theme of positivity, I want to say a big thank you to everybody who's listened to the podcast this week. Thank you to everyone who's been listening uh, every week. You know, we really appreciate your continued support. Uh, we appreciate everyone's interactions on Twitter. Um, we hope everyone is as excited about a potential weekend uh, on the west coast of France as we are um, and I think that's everything from me yeah thanks to everyone for listening and we will see you next week after the guaranteed Harlequins victory now we've all picked <laughs> to sail with you.